Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, September 26th. Today on Media Monday, John Kelly and I talk about Jake Tapper moving to primetime on CNN. Is he the new face of Chris Lick's revamped network? And we chat about Joe Biden's 60 Minutes interview and his comments about maybe not running again in 2024. The remark opened up a new round of questions about him possibly being a one-termer. So how should the political press cover Biden's indecision? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers the Beat. Happy Media Monday, everybody. If it's Media Monday, that means I'm talking to the boss man, John Kelly, about the media, whatever that means. You know, sometimes here at Puck, it means a lot of CNN because CNN keeps delivering and Dylan Byers keeps getting the scoops. He hinted strongly in one of his pieces, John, that Jake Tapper was going to be moving to primetime, perhaps temporarily, maybe an experiment. And then lo and behold, the next day, Friday, uh, it gets announced. Jake Tapper moves to primetime for CNN through the midterm elections, reported the Los Angeles Times. Um, what do you make of this move, John? Well, yeah, that uh, that handout to the Times came eight minutes after uh, after Dylan tweeted it at 5.30 in the morning, LA time. Uh, Dylan happened to be in New York. I want to give credit to Dylan's reporting. It seems like Licht had been working on Tapper for a long time to to make this move. Uh, you know, we we've remarked before. In fact, you actually asked me pointedly a couple of weeks ago, why wasn't Tapper in prime time? He seemed like so obviously a Licht man. You know, the 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 man of the moment here. And I, I, you know, what we've sort of learned is that Tapper really liked his gig. He liked being in the afternoons. He's he's uh, he's a family man. Uh, afternoon television is uh, is enjoyable television. You, you finish your working day, you can go out at night, you can see your, your kids at night. It's, it's different than being on prime time. Lick did the same thing with Lemon. He eventually coaxed him to the morning. So the temporary nature of this is probably set up in a way that A, signals some optionality. If it, if it doesn't work, both sides will be able to go back in it. But all indications are that Lick wants this to work. He wants Tapper to get comfortable doing it. I presume that uh, there are probably incentives to make that the case. And Tapper's now going to be competing against the Maddowless Maddow Hour. You know, uh, he'll probably get his clock cleaned on Mondays, but you have to believe that Tuesday through Friday, he's going to uh, triumph over Alex Wagner in, in what has really become this just incredible Brinksman-like de-escalation of uh, primetime from both MSNBC and CNN. Yeah, I mean, I also think that, like, the temporary nature of this is interesting. I mean, like, I don't, I don't think it'll be temporary. Um, you know, Dylan wrote that, Tapper represents kind of the ideal of what Chris Licht and, and David Zaslav would want, which is like the closest thing you, you can get. And I would put Anderson Cooper in this category too, is sort of the like credible newsman. And in Jake's case, like a lot of CNN hosts in the Trump era, the Zucker era, like, you know, gave their shows over to, you know, opinion and and like loud essays and, and just editorializing. And, you know, Jake threaded that needle pretty well. Like, you know, he, he called out, Trump, where he deserved to be called out, which was often, but was also fair. And like Jake has relationships on Capitol Hill, Republicans and Democrats. It's hard to get a Republican on CNN sometimes. Um, and and But Jake is good at maintaining relationships with politicians and getting them on the show. So I think that's valuable. But like the temporary nature of this, whether it's temporary or not, I don't think it is. I mean, we should also say that uh, Laura Coates and Allison yep. Camerata, Camerata, excuse me, are going to be hosting the 10 p.m. hour through the midterms. 
it's like a sports team that's rebuilding. It's like um, like LSU football this year, you know, like you're playing <laughs> some freshmen on the O line. Like there are quarterback lefts. You have a transfer quarterback. Like, but you can afford to have some rebuilding time right now because the ratings are down, expectations are pretty low. Like you can noodle. I mean, and this is the thing. Like this is a problem with political coverage too. Like a lot of people have been covering, and a lot of critics have been talking about CNN in such a way where it's like they're losing their minds over this or that. Like they're getting rid of their like truth tellers and, uh, you know, like Brian Stelter or whatever. You've said this so many times. Licht is taking his time. Like this is a long rebuild uh, and, you know, they can afford to move some puzzle pieces around. But it does feel like Jake feels like a natural fit for primetime, especially as they go more toward that like straight, serious newsman, newswoman point of view on the news. Uh, the, the kind of perhaps BBC model that we keep talking about, but who knows? Well, I think one of the underappreciated elements of this is that in addition to hosting the lead for a couple of hours a day, Tapper hosts State of the Union, the, the CNN Sunday show. And those Sunday shows are essentially uh, ratings fests, right? And, and the ratings are based on the bookings. And to get good bookings, you have to have great relationships. And to have great relationships, you have to be willing to let people talk their game. And I, I think during part of the, during part of the Trump years, um, Tapper had on the Kellyanne Conways of the world and the Stephen Millers and certainly took them to task in, in very YouTubeable clips. And, uh, you know, the world was temporarily out of its mind at that moment. And, and actually, I think one of the um, unfair criticisms of, of that era is, put it another way, can you imagine what would have happened if CNN was totally nonpartisan when Donald Trump was totally denuding these institutions and, and, and destroying these norms. Like, give me a break. There's a lot of sort of talking points at work here from the Zaz and Malone side of things. But Tapper has the relationships that I think will make him very, very valuable at nine. And you mentioned something else you were talking about. My, uh, my uncle, Brian Kelly, your, uh, your coach at, uh, at LSU, um, <laughs> who's on this, uh, I guess he's rebuilding in a 10 year, hundred million dollar contract. If that's something you can do, but Lick does have something similar. He has the total support of Zaslov. These are big decisions in that world. You know, we saw how long it took for MSNBC to figure out what to do with Matto. We saw how long it, it took to figure out what to do in both the morning and in prime time, they can call this temporary. They can say that it's iterative and that they're really trying to, to test and learn. But these things do have to work. You know, we, we've talked about that in the past with CNN. If Lemon's a disaster in the morning, it's possible. I don't know, Don, but everyone really does love him. Um, but if that doesn't work out, if something goes wrong at, at 9 or 10, it's going to be harder to, to, to keep moving things. So, I imagine these were very labored decisions and, and you know, people listening should be Dylan's piece from Friday because it'll, it'll be clear how early and often Zaz went to Licht for advice on CNN even before Licht had the job, even before Zucker left the company that he, he trusted Licht. I don't think Zazov has a lot of connections in, in TV news. So, so Licht was a, a, a shoulder for him to lean on and uh, Tapper was identified very early as their guy. In the LA Times piece that you referenced, Licht gives this quote uh, explaining what they're doing, like denying that they're changing any viewpoint, um, denying that they're be becoming more Republican. And this is what he said, quote, we are doing this with one mission, and that's to make CNN a place where people can turn for the truth. But if people don't believe it, it's like a tree falling in the forest with no one hearing it. So everything I'm doing is to restore CNN's perception in the world of being an unbiased truth merchant, and it has nothing to do with left or right. That strategy might have some, you know, hit some potholes. People might clip some random things on CNN. 
that they disagree with and maybe they'll go viral. Maybe some host or reporter will do some boneheaded thing and that'll go viral. But like, you can't root against that mission statement. I think anyone would agree that you want <laughs> on television, especially like just whatever the truth is and, and less, you know, outrageous hair on fire opinion that makes people tune it out. And I'm rooting for that. You are totally right. And I root as well. But I, I do want to add the, the small asterisk that I think the the, the, the Lichtian mandate has now um, been so defined in the public narrative that I think we are often guilty of, of over-hysteriaizing uh, the, um, the, the Trump years or, or at risk of over-hysteriaizing the, the Trump years of, um, of CNN, where certainly if there was a, and I'm just trying to give credit where it's due, uh, if there was a school shooting or an airline incident or an act of God event, um, the war in Ukraine was a good example, CNN was still the, the locus for for many news consumers. Um, it's a um, Licht can can speak in in grandiose terms, but I think it's a course correction more than a um, an overhaul. There's just some fundamentals at CNN that can still be um, you know put to work very quickly and easily. You know, um, it just means turning the volume down a little bit on the opinion. Um, hey, uh, yeah, when we come back, I want to talk to you about sixty minutes. So John, Tara Palmieri had an item toward the end of last week about um, Joe Biden's 60 Minutes interview with Scott Pelley. And he sort of like left the door open to not running again. And Tara was like, Democrats started calling the White House and calling around being like, is this true? Is this not true? And like, I think people like have a tendency to read too much into what Biden says at any given moment on anything because he just can't help himself. Like he throws these weird random preambles onto his answers around anything. In this case, well, I can't say I'm running again because that would violate FEC rules. It's like, dude, you can say that without violating FEC you rules. You sure can, yes. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't know. what. So what did what did Tara have to say about uh, this kerfuffle? Well, you know, it was actually like an, almost an SNL skit of a Biden performance where uh, I think it was a two-segment. I actually watched it live. The first time I watched 60 Minutes Live in a long time, I was, I was coming from whatever football game had, had fed me there, and I was curious to see it. In the interstitial of, of both segments, Pelly had to basically say, yes, we, we contacted the White House afterwards and they walked back and corrected what, what Biden said here. And Tara pointed out that, yes, Democratic mega donors called the White House afterwards and said, is this true? This is at odds with what we think here, because I've, I've talked to mega donors who say there is no plan B. But it, it's Biden and then Biden and then Biden. And the White House tried to assure them, no, 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 that's just Biden being Biden. He's absolutely running. But uh, Tara says, you know, um, that some... Uh, of these mega donors also thought the White House doth protest too much. And and this is a little fishy behavior and it's obviously not a good look. And I have to tell you, I, I watched this and I thought, you know, and I want to be entirely sensitive about this because it's, it's a sensitive topic. Uh, and I'm a, a man with a 79 year old father. Biden looked very, very old. And this was obviously peak Biden and, and Biden has had this, this revamped press and, and narrative strategy you know, about dealing with inflation, bringing down oil prices, being on the right side of Ukraine and, and galvanizing the issue. The fact that the Republicans really have sort of um, disappointed in um, in the midterms, at least, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the expectations. And this was meant to be a heroic turn. I mean, obviously, he should be doing Good Luck America rather than 60 Minutes. We don't have to bore the listeners of this show to, to explain why, why he'd reach eons more eyeballs even after a you know, a, a national football game. Well, they have 60 get sons of yours, but they're of a certain age. Yes, they're of a certain age. Of a different age. <laughs> they are. But he looked slow. Even his fighting lines looked slow. 
Uh, I'm sure like many men his age, he has good days and bad days. And I'm not saying in any way that, um, that he can't be president. Uh, but it does make you think, wow, like imagine this Biden in six years. And uh, I think we've talked about this before. We've certainly talked about it privately, but it makes you wonder that whether the media narrative that only Biden can be Trump is conflated with the actual political narrative, which is that there is a anti-Trump co coalition that the Democrats can whip up and should be considering because uh, he, he, looked, he looked old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is like politics unfolds according to sort, certain rules. But then again, like a lot of times it just doesn't. Maybe Biden's the only person who can beat Trump, but like probably not. <laughs> you know, we, we have yet to see. The doth protest too much thing is, is what jumps out at me so much. Like, I think political watchers need to remember that a politician might say one thing and just change his mind later. Uh, because they are trying to protect their flanks. They are trying to not look like a lame duck. They are trying to do whatever they think they need to do to maintain whatever their political currency is at any given moment. The famous example is Barack Obama going on Meet the Press with Tim Russert back in 06, maybe, 07, and being like, I'm not running, you know? And then, like, then you do. And, like, no one cares. Like, who cares that he, like, changed his mind? Like, he's allowed to do that. One of my favorite examples of this and, like, rep reporters being duped by it was Rick Perry... In 2011, governor of Texas, eventually ran for president for the Republican nomination, said at a press conference in Austin in front of reporters, I'm thinking about running for president. And it like was a shockwave through politics, in part because the Romney campaign was already running. And they were like, what the fuck? And oh then like <laughs> Perry's spokesman turned around and told reporters on background, he's not thinking about running for president. And reporters like credulously <laughs> like wrote it up like, oh, well, he's actually not thinking about it. It's like he fucking said it. And so like Biden can say, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. But we all know he's going to decide after the midterms with Jill and his family members if he's healthy enough to do it. I do think that his success over the last few months in finally getting a bunch of shit done actually lets him walk away on top. If he didn't have a portfolio to point back to and be like, I did that, I did that, I did that. There would be something like in the back of his head where he's like, fuck, I got to run, I got to finish the job. He's done a lot. And he did the number one thing that people wanted him to do, which was to beat Donald Trump and turn the page back to at least a semblance of normalcy. He didn't get the country back to being bipartisan, but he did peel off some Republican votes here and there on, on some big things. And like, you know, he can not run. And, and Mike Memoli, in Tara references piece, Mike Memoli from NBC News, who's covered Biden since 2007, 2006, I think, when he ran for president at that time, wrote this big piece about like, how Biden's piecing together his re-election bid. Obviously, like Anita Dunn and Rashetti and Klain and, and Jen O'Malley Dillon and Donilon are all gonna like get together and figure this shit out. And his wife and his sister. They are building the pieces for re-elect through the DNC, which is not how Obama did it. Obama sort of kept all of his pieces together outside the DNC so he could turn the lights on whenever he ran again for re-election. The DNC thing does suggest that whatever political operation, whatever email lists, whatever shit they have, can be transferable, not to any primary campaign, but to whoever wins the nomination eventually. And like, we just have to wait and see. Like Biden hasn't made up his mind. Like he might not run again. And we just need to be like, no matter what they say, they're obviously going to say he's running again because they need to maintain their political strength and not be a lame duck and not give away the, give away the bank like right now. But like he can come out in January, February, March of next year and be like, you know what? It's time for a new generation. But he, he is also getting things done. So that's why it's such a question mark. Yes, he is getting things done. And, um, you know, just one last note on this. 
there is an inside conversation about how Biden does not love being president, about how he worries what will happen when the Republicans uh, take over Congress, as they almost certainly will, and, and how taxing that'll be on on Hunter in, in particular. And there's a lot of reason to believe that that for every reason you just stated, there's a heroic triumphant exit for him here, but that a lot of the people around him politically are motivated to keep him in power. And there's a, a less charitable version of this that suggested that there are a lot of Obama second stringers here that want something in it for themselves. And that does happen all the time in Washington. I think there's going to be a real tension, an undercurrent tension in how the Biden family makes this decision. Because you're right, they will. And, and that is like a family that truly makes family first decisions and how they make it vis-a-vis the interests of the political operatives around him. Um, This is going to be very, very fascinating stuff. I I think that we're really at the tip of the iceberg here. Once the midterms happen, the number one story in politics will be for the next three or four months. Like Biden has to make this decision. He doesn't have to make it in January 1st, but he does have to allow time for other Democratic politicians to build their campaigns, to raise money. And like once we hit 2023, you've got 12 months until New Hampshire... Whoever replaces Iowa, South Carolina. So, you know, he has to make that decision. And um, we will see in the early part of next year. If history is a guy, Biden will take all the time he wants and (laughs) he will infuriate people by taking even more time than that. And then he will aim to do exactly what he wants, but uh, will inevitably um, listen to the people around him. That, that's what he's done time and time again uh, ever since the 80s. Yeah. And also, I just thought this popped into my head. I remember when he was thinking about running in 2020, he was able to keep that really close to the vest with his tight crew of advisors. And even until he announced, it was sort of like, I don't know if he's going to do it. You know, this stuff can change on a dime. Yeah. Anyway, John, have a great week, man. (laughs) All right, man. I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.